Welcome to Mind the Shift. I am Anders Bolling. One of my pet topics is how we see the world. There is, of course, as many worldviews as there are people. But there is also a handful of collective views. These consensus depictions of how humanity is faring are provided by leading figures, some organizations, and by the media. My view has always been that the world is better than we think, and I base that on the gap between actual trends and what most people who don't bother to check the numbers think are the trends. There is a camp among debaters that advocates this more optimistic view, but I'd say that the default, default worldview is a far more pessimistic one, which says that we haven't been able to address poverty, violence, or pollution. Most of the time, we're on the brink of apocalypse. And the strange thing is that those who are in the pessimist camp, which I perceive as uh, the dominant one, claim that we're told or fooled to believe that we live in the best of worlds. So there is some kind of cognitive dissonance here. As you know, I've been talking a lot about spiritual matters on the podcast. And that is because I think it's important and it tells us truths about ourselves that we don't normally realize in our day-to-day life on earth. One thing that often surprises me with so-called spiritual people, however, is that they so often adhere to the apocalyptic camp when conveying their general view on how we're doing as a species. And I don't quite understand why that is. Many in the spiritual community describe the times we live in as chaotic, and they often point out how we humans are still relentlessly destroying Mother Earth. I have a hard time making sense of that because from a spiritual viewpoint, we choose our reality and humankind is arguably closer to a breakthrough in consciousness than ever before. And furthermore, spiritually inclined people for the most part realize that the continuous misery focus in the media is rather a reflection reflection of a lowered misery threshold, meaning that it takes less to reach the headlines than a factual deterioration. Many of them also claim that they don't watch the news anymore. And yet many of them still depict our modern world as if it were on the brink of destruction. To me, this is an an enigma. But I guess you have to keep several thoughts in your mind at the same time. Chaos and brink of collapse can mean different things and they are relative concepts. I too tend to believe that the millennia old top-down way of ruling, ruling our human society is poised to crumble, which means that it's going to be messy for a while. But that messiness is on the surface, and it is basically a benevolent messiness. For something better to emerge, the old must go. And it's not going to happen without resistance from those who think they benefit from the old order, of course. However, almost every underlying megatrend is positive. 
even if the principle of development is two steps forward and one step back. This goes for social trends like tolerance and acceptance of people from other cultures, violence, health, poverty, and yes, the environment. No environmental hazard goes unnoticed anymore. It is as even those who ought to have the clearest eagle eye view on humankind are also tricked by the close-up bias and the steadily lowered misery threshold of the media. Yes, it looks messy and it's going to look messy for some time because today all of us know everything that's happening everywhere on the planet in real time. And until we can clearly discern what is truly dangerous and what is not, and until we can clearly realize how much is not happening, many will perceive the world as a dangerous place. You know, we have many times before believed that doomsday has waited just around the corner, and more recently than you think. Let me walk you through 10 cancelled modern-day apocalypses. My guess is that you probably will recognize a few, but you will have forgotten the rest, and you will most probably realize that you had totally forgotten how scared we were in the midst of each of these episodes. Number one. In 1968, Paul and Anne Ehrlich published a book, The Population Bomb. It became a bestseller and contributed to a widespread fear of an uncontrollable increase in the human population. This was at a time when we were less than half as many as we are today, but when more than twice as many were extremely poor. Extreme poverty peaked sometime around 1970. And the very first sentence of that book set the tone. It said, the battle to feed all of humanity is over. In the 1970s, the book promised hundreds of millions of people are going to starve to death. No matter what people do, nothing can prevent a substantial increase in the world death rate. And the Ehrlichs weren't the only doomsday mongers. A Swedish biologist and food researcher, Georg Borgström, published several books with the same message, like The Hungry Planet. Some debaters had objections, but the mainstream story was one of imminent famine if nothing was done about the explosive prolifera proliferation of human beings. It was the story in Swedish textbooks in the 70s. I know because I went to school then. A few years later, another influential book, The Limits to Growth, had similar dire predictions. This narrative half a century ago connected tightly to, to uh, the idea that Thomas Malthus had already in the 19th century that humankind was poised to outgrow food. That it was inevitable that, that there were going to be too many people on, on Earth to be able to feed. Malthus's grim conclusion was that population grew exponentially while food resources grew linearly. Many were afraid, very afraid. But it wasn't the end of the world. The predictions were wrong. Today, there is more food per capita and less poverty than ever. Number two is 
about the death of forests. This was a thing in Northern Europe in the early 1980s. In parts of Southern Sweden, West and East Germany, Czechoslovakia and Poland, conifers dried out and seemed to be slowly dying. Other trees too, but mainly conifers. There was a nearly complete consensus that the forests were dying because of air pollution. The German newspaper Süddeutsche Zeitung wrote in 1982 that forests in Germany would be gone within five years. But the hypothesis was almost completely wrong. Some trees were in fact affected negatively, neg negatively by pollution. But the more widespread loss of fir needles and, and, and um, drying out of trees that had been noticed was mainly due to drought and in combination with some genetic factors. Generally, the forests continue to grow and at a faster pace. Germany and Sweden now have more forested land than in hundreds of years. Number three is 9-11 and the war on terrorism. It's improbable that many of you, many people uh, generally, have completely forgotten about this threat. Since terrorism can be defined flexibly enough always to be a potential problem. But how many still walk around in that constant state of fear of suicide bomb attacks that was triggered by the events of 9-11? Those bloody and spectacular attacks, terror attacks, plus a few subsequent attacks in, in Europe kicked off a period of intense activity to tighten security. And we still live with this tightening of regulations. One example only, the ban on liquid containers larger than 100 milliliters in your hand luggage when you fly. It was introduced in 2006 and was originally intended to last for 18 months. 15 years later, we still have to pour out our soft drinks before we pass airport security. We're now in the midst of a pandemic that has virtually put our lives on hold. And the regulations that radically have been put in place are historically harsh. How dangerous the SARS-CoV-2 virus actually is and how necessary the lockdowns have been will be discussed for years to come. But do you remember the fear around certain flu outbreaks earlier this century? After the first reported cases in 1997, there were outbreaks of avian flu or bird flu in 2004 five, six, and seven in different parts of the world. And later in 2009, the so-called swine flu swept across the globe. It belonged to the same influenza strain as the Spanish flu, actually. Around 285,000 people died from the swine flu, which is about as many as from an ordinary seasonal flu. Many countries decided on mass vaccinations. Then in, in 2003 and 2012, there were also limited outbreaks of two different coronaviruses, SARS and MERS, respectively. The Russian aggression. Now, this is probably a controversial example and one that many will claim is a real and ongoing problem and not without fair reasons. However, I still think the apparent outcome is way less apocalyptic than the predictions when it happened. 
In 2008, Russian troops marched into Georgia to assist South Ossetian rebels in a five-day war. The headlines spoke of imminent risk of escalation, a war between the big powers. But there never was any escalation. Six years later, Russia acted even more provocatively against Ukraine and annexed Crimea. This time, the proxy war that followed in another bordering region between the two countries lasted several years and resulted in, tragically, in thousands of casualties. The conflict also resulted in sour to toxic relations between Russia and the West, but arguably not in the all-out clash that many warned was inevitable. Disastrous, no doubt, but no apocalypse. In September 2008, the Wall Street investment bank Lehman Brothers went bust and the financial crisis was a fact. The whole of 2009 was seen as a lost year in many countries. Debaters, politicians and the media alike spoke of a return to the depression of the 1930s. And it was a turbulent time, indeed. Unemployment and interest rates spiked. Economic output shrank. Many were afraid, very afraid. But it turned out not to be the end of the world. After a few gigantic rescue packages and some blissful oblivion, investors began investing like before, and the gears were turning again. Only a few years later, Europeans panicked when an overcredited and underfinanced Greece seemed to be on the brink of bankruptcy. The problem was that Greece was part of the common European currency. So the whole euro area trembled. Interest rates skyrocketed in countries that were considered to be next in turn. Pundits predicted a collapse of the euro, or at the very least, a breakup with dire repercussions on the general economy. Many were afraid, very afraid. But it wasn't the end of neither the euro nor of Greece's participation in the common currency. Early in 2014, a disease far more dangerous than COVID-19 began spreading in West Africa. Isolated outbreaks of Ebola had previously happened mainly in the Congo, but this time it occurred in a region with more urban development and more communication. By springtime, the hemorrhagic fever was spreading in three countries, and cases were also reported from a number of adjacent nations, even in places in, on other continents, such as uh, countries like the United States, United Kingdom, and Spain, and also in Italy. Many were afraid, but this was also not the end of the world. By 2015, the outbreak was contained. Around the same time, media consumers were shocked to suddenly realize that a band of extreme jihadists were about to conquer large swathes of the Middle East. ISIS, as they were called, 
even took over the second biggest city in Iraq and forced its medieval laws upon two million dwellers. Some scholars and debaters warned that this was inevitable because of the case that the U.S. invasion of Iraq had created and that we would simply have to accept that a vicious caliphate was now established on the outskirts of Europe. Many were very afraid again. But this was also not the end of the world. Four years later, the territorial ISIS caliphate was gone. The war in Syria has led to millions of refugees, as most of you know. Most of them have left for Lebanon, Jordan, or Turkey. In the fall of 2015, a stream of refugees decided to try and make their way to Western Europe. The stream became a wave, which was enlarged eventually uh, or um, successively by additional migrants from Iraq, Afghanistan, and parts of Africa. In all, over a million people arrived in the European Union, which has 500 million inhabitants. So one 500th of the population of Europe arrived uh, in, the, in the form of these migrants, these refugees. Right-wing populists were furious. Many leaders panicked and decided on harsh measures, regulations, and uh, return of border controls. This year-long episode was to be known as the migration crisis. Many were afraid, very afraid. But it wasn't the end of Europe as we know it. Today, fewer migrants arrive in the European Union than before the wave of migrants. But we still live with some of the so-called temporary border controls. I'll give you a bonus example that is perhaps a little bit premature. The Donald Trump tenure. We're already beginning to forget the panicky reactions to practically everything the Donald said and tweeted. What he actually did, on the other hand, or managed to do, is less clear. So, do I by this mean that Every perceived threat today is just a chimera, a bogeyman. Absolutely not. But looking back in history just a little bit and rediscovering all those passing waves of fear, waves we've already forgotten, tells you that there might be cause for some refreshing neutrality here. A little bit of hold your horses. I mean, why should any current crisis be different, closer to the apocalypse, than the previous ones? Humankind is a pretty self-centered species. Most of the existential threats that we perceive are human-made, but the single biggest truly apocalyptic threat actually lurks in space. The risk of a direct hit by an asteroid that would mean game over. Apart from that big one, I personally do think there still is a slight risk of a nuclear war, but only in the un unlikely scenario 
that a series of fatally bad decisions are made one after another. And global warming could just possibly prove to be as bad as the alarmists claim, although the jury is actually still out when it comes to determining the gravity of that problem. Now, some who listen to arguments like these will object that the very reason that these potential apocalypses were averted is that people became worried and did something. And yes, I mean, to some extent, that is probably exactly what has happened. It all goes together. And in some cases, notably the, the case about the, you know, the dying forests in Northern Europe in the, in the 1980s, even a false alarm can generate, quote unquote, collateral benefits, like a hastened development of exhaust emission control, which happened in, in, in that period. My take on this is twofold. Firstly, the action taken is not thanks to the pessimists, but thanks to the optimists who saw the possibilities and took responsibility. In my book, a true pessimist never takes action because there's no point in taking action and doing anything. If action is taken, you're not a pessimist. That's how I see it. And secondly, I think we would better understand our complicated predicament on this planet if we were trusted with taking action for the right reasons and not because we're fooled to believe that there is a crisis going on. I mean, a big crisis, apocalyptic crisis. But oddly enough, not even the objection about action taken because of worry seems to change the minds of those who are convinced we live in apocalyptic times. It is like they think, oh, it may have worked out before, but I'm not convinced it's going to work out this time around. And finally, I have to return to Steven Pinker. He's definitely not on the spiritual team, quite the opposite. Uh, I've already mentioned in an earlier episode uh, what he said in an interview after having brilliantly described humankind's progress over thousands of years towards less violence and more civilized behavior. When he got the question whether he thought this was going to continue, he said he didn't think history had a certain direction. That's mystical thinking, and I'm not a mystic, Pinker said. Hmm. So it doesn't seem to matter whether they are spiritually inclined or atheists. Thinkers on all sides mistrust our next step. I suspect many of them are, in a sense, cultural victims. It's considered more serious to be pessimistic than to be optimistic. And the latter is sometimes even seen as a bit reckless, as if optimists dismiss or play down the suffering in the world. It's all a big misunderstanding, if you ask me. The reason we evolve and raise our vibration at all is that a sufficient number of hearts and minds believe in themselves and their fellow humans. Our evolution is thanks to them. I think that if more of us realized this, we would have an easier ride. But humankind will arrive 
where we're supposed to arrive anyway. Maybe not in this lifetime, but in some lifetime. Time, anyway, is only a side effect of the physical realm. So why the rush, as Richard Rudd has said? But that's a different story. Speaking of that, though, I just want to say one more thing. I've obviously talked here about the fate of the entire human species on the planet. But every individual facet of our species is a mini version of the history of humankind played out within each lifetime. The planet has already hosted 107 billion of those personal histories. What about them? Did it all work out for them, do you think? Or was every death a disaster? Of course not. That's what awaits us all, no matter what the collective looks like. And in this very primordial sense, it always works out for us. Thank you.